This is part two of the interview with Logan Brown and Bradley Rufner, who acquired, transformed, grew, and sold a local landscaping business over a three and a half year period. If you didn't already listen to part one, you'll probably want to go back and do that first. This part picks right up where part one ended, mid-conversation. As a reminder, we've just heard how Bradley and Logan realize, only three months into ownership of this landscaping business they've acquired, that the cash conversion cycle is pretty terrible in their business, and that some of the projects in the pipeline are not materializing according to their expectations. In short, it's a classic cash flow crunch. Let's continue. Welcome to Acquiring Minds, a podcast about buying businesses. My name is Will Smith. Acquiring an existing business is an awesome opportunity for many entrepreneurs, and on this podcast, I talk to the people who do it. Top of the list for most acquisition entrepreneurs after they close on the business is digital marketing. Is the business doing it properly or at all? Has the website been touched since 2005? In many cases, that website is going to need an overhaul. Eversight is a firm that works with searchers to do custom redesigns of their websites for a flat monthly fee. So you don't need to spend down your precious working capital for a custom redesign of the website. That and all ongoing support is baked into their monthly fee. So your website cost is simple and predictable month after month with the assurance of knowing you can ping the folks at Eversight for any changes you might need. And you will talk to a human. Call or email your Eversight rep, make a request, and expect your changes live in hours, sometimes minutes. There is so much going on when you transition that business you buy. Make the website management easy by putting it in the capable hands of Eversight. Check out eversight.com searchers. So how do you get yourself out of this mess? <laughs> Let's get to the good stuff where you where you finally uh, go hard after maintenance revenue. Yeah. So I, a quick note on the emotional side of it that's related to this yeah. question Will, is part of what became really hard is we would go sell all these projects. We would we would experience these problems. We'd get past some big cash flow crunch, and then we'd kind of think, "Oh my gosh, we're on the other side of this, and we've ruined the company so much. This is awesome." And then we'd look up another couple months later, and everything would kind of be falling apart again. And that became really hard because then it, it felt like we couldn't truly celebrate a lot of our wins because we'd get to a point where we didn't trust some of our results. <laughs> so, you know, kind of, I guess to explain one level deeper, you know, we might have just completed a bunch of projects and, you know, it looks like we've pulled in all this revenue from these projects and we've made all this money off of these projects. And then because of the difficulty in accounting for construction project earnings, um, you know, we might realize one or two months later after we go back and fix a couple more things and then there's a warranty issue and then we realize, you know, we needed to, we needed to adjust um, the sort of real margin that we actually made on this project back down. We'd have to write down a project essentially. Um, we'd have to kind of go back and rewrite the story around the last several months of mm -hmm. what the company actually did performance wise. That was a really hard experience to go through. We did that a couple times. Um, and that, that ended up being a tough part of the roller coaster because we were growing the business like a rocket ship at the time. 
we were doubling both departments um, in the first couple of years every year. So we went from like eight to 16 million in construction. We went from one to two in maintenance. And, uh, you know, operating both of those was a, a big challenge and, and had a lot of hard, difficult elements to it. We did then did the same thing the next year. We didn't quite double construction. I think construction got up to, I don't know, 20 something. Um, that was in 2019. And, and we had now doubled uh, maintenance again. So I think this was, I guess this was like two and a half years in. So we had, we had almost gotten to 8 million at the time in, in maintenance by the end of 2019. So just, um, it, it was a really exciting time in many ways. Like we, we were climbing out of our hole that we had gotten into early on by growing the maintenance business, one, two, trying to sign up for better and better construction projects, weed out the bad revenue. Um, over time, we eventually built out a credit department. You know, we could have a whole separate episode on just building out a credit department and how to collect on revenue. Um, but we had a, a really great process built out for that. By the time it was all said and done, our revenue management process and billing process was a lot more clean. So we were billing customers in the way that they wanted to be billed and on time, you know, with the right information, right PO number, it's about, you know, all these little details that come together to put together the right billing process. Um, and so we, we climbed out of it slowly, but really I think it didn't truly fix itself. Like the problem wasn't really done until we had grown maintenance to be, you know, uh, almost half of our business and we had shrunk construction construction down um, because maintenance was such the, the, the really healthy part of our business is better cash flows, better margins, et cetera. And so once, once we had grown maintenance at like a hundred percent a year for three and a half years uh, and we had shrunk construction down from its peak, that's when we had really fully climbed out and we could breathe a little bit. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you, if you were growing maintenance, doubling year over year for three years, or I don't know if that's what you said, but growing it consistently and solidly for three mm -hmm. years, uh, you, you were clearly getting you know a front row seat to how much better this side of your business was. <laughs> Why not? Did, did you consider just going really um, more dramatically against your construction business sooner? <laughs> Because I'm, I'm getting the impression that it was kind of like one of these over like three, four years, instead of just being like, you know, being more um, cut it. ruthless <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, on, your on the construction side. You know, it felt like at the time we were being pretty uh, open and honest about where we thought quality revenue was within our business. And every year it seemed like we were calling off bad revenue from our business. So year one looked like taking our maintenance book and removing the residential accounts. We were finding we were getting so much um, demands from our residential customers compared to our uh, commercial customers with the residential customers being more than our commercial customers in total quantity, but way less in total revenue. So that was you know, kind of the first calling. And then on the construction side, we were doing multiple different business lines within construction. We were doing developer work, some of these residential developments that we were talking about. We were also doing mm -hmm. custom home installations for large custom home builders. And we were doing production home installations for or track home builders like DR Horton and people like that. And in our, our first year, we made the decision to remove the production homes. That was a hard decision to lop off over a million dollars in revenue. But we, 
we thought that would have been a better area to spend those resources working on on larger projects in construction. And at that time, that felt like a monumental switch. We're repurposing 15 people within the company. And the next year, we made the decision to remove custom homes, trying to climb the quality of revenue spectrum within our construction department to get as close as we could to the person who has the cash to pay you, is who you're working directly with, and you're working on larger projects that the business is more suited to work for, competing against less people. So in many ways, it felt like we were doing that. But, you know, I, I think if we would have continued to own the business, you know, there might have been the contemplation to do, you know, more aggressively look at maintenance instead of construction, um, keep construction exactly where it was or shrink it even further or mm-hmm. close it down completely. But, we, you know, we were trying to run the business in a way that made sense based on what we bought and trying to constantly improve the quality of revenue along the way. Yeah, we also don't talk a lot about how I think our, our values probably played a big role in that too, because we we wouldn't, it was hard for us to entertain the idea of like letting go of uh, a fairly large amount of people at the time. If we were to try and truly like <laughs> shut it down, yeah, um, it would be hard from a business perspective to, because there, so, there was a lot of customer overlaps. So we had a lot of fear around truly like saying, hey, we're, we're shutting down this huge thing that you probably rely on. Like, when do you when do you choose the right time to shut that down? Because it's not going to be the right time for every customer. And that could really leave some people in a bind if you try and and wind it down too quickly. And then you have to say, you know, we're, we're letting you go to potentially a lot of people that you couldn't move over to maintenance. And we never felt comfortable at any point in the story uh, you know, shutting the whole business down and and just saying goodbye to a hundred people yeah. that were helping us build this company and who had you know signed on for the journey of building out the construction department. So instead, I think when we got to that, the intersection of where our values met, the right business move was just trying to to slowly sort of work its way down from the peak, which was you know twenty something million, down to. I don't remember what we were at, maybe in the 10 to 12 range or something by the time that that we were selling the business and then we were operating it even post-sale during the earnout phase. You know, we were we were focused on just trying to keep, you know, all the employees employed. We were trying to make money in construction. We were trying to do a good job for our customers, but we were not trying to aggressively grow it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's one thing to look at it on the model in an Excel file, maybe where my brain goes first. Then another thing when you're actually you know, operating the business, these are your friends and these are the people you've worked with every day for four years. And everybody wants to improve the business. Like, it's not like anybody was okay with having negative cash flow dynamics and low profitability. Low profitability. Yeah. Like everybody wanted to, to crush it. We're all motivated, competitive people. So, yeah. But I mean, it what from a bit, from a financial standpoint, like basically all of our EBITDA was coming from the maintenance department. It's pretty crazy. Well, you, did do a really good job. It sounds like you were really doing a good job of growing the maintenance revenue, even though you were dealing with juggling the whole construction side fiasco. Um, so how were you, talk, talk about that. I, I know that aggressive sales or, or just kind of like building yeah. out a sales function was key to that. So let, let's get yeah. into that. Yeah, I'm glad we gave enough time to the construction because it's easy to just talk about the wins and I'm glad we dug into that side of the business. And I think that's you know, quality of revenue, the difference between recurring and project based is something we think about all the time. So I think hopefully it was helpful for the listeners to hear, you know, those two businesses well, and side I, by I side. Also, just to interject, I mean, I think that, you know, going all the way back to your kind of original thesis, you were looking for a business to essentially improve, bring your edge mm-hmm. and improve 
um, and kind of maybe on the outside that was like professionalized, new facilities, grow some, management layer, kind of all the normal things. But really what you guys probably didn't sign up for, but did was you transformed a business. You took yeah. a construction business and made it a maintenance business. So that's really a much deeper surgery on a business that yeah. you acquired. Um, so just want to highlight that point. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's why we always sound a little hypocritical when we talk about like everybody needing to go buy a recurring revenue business and how much more valuable they are and you know the, the commonplace wisdom of doing that um, because we did almost the exact opposite. <laughs> it took like a yeah. project-based business and yeah, transformed it. But that process is very much like surgery. I mean, it's there's a lot of pain involved. Uh, and in this case with no anesthesia, where you're experiencing every single painful part of the operation to transform it from one thing into the next. So, um, you know, it's sort of a, a tread cautiously situation, but so yeah, where the, where the story is a lot of fun and is super positive is yeah, we doubled every year, the main business. We started at one. So within the first year we were at two year, two, four, eight, 16. So, you know, basically the way that it, it started from the beginning is we were selling uh, a much more premium product than what we had bought. So we were trying to transform the brand, like we mentioned earlier in the talk. Um, we came up with a fresh new logo. We bought brand new Under Armour uniforms for the entire maintenance staff. Uh, so they were they looked like, we, we bought it for everybody actually, but the maintenance staff included. Um, so they looked like they were, you know, the Oregon Ducks versus uh, a landscape <laughs> contractor. Um, and we had started introducing this idea of starting to compare yourself, like the management team, starting to compare themselves to other professional industries rather than compare yourself to other contractors. So even in year one, we'd be like, think about a law firm, right? Like people are paying law firms a lot of money and it's inappropriate to walk into a law firm meeting in your shorts and a hoodie, right? Like you just don't show up that way because there's a standard there and there's an expectation that, you know, I'm paying you a lot of money for something. I expect you to look professional and put together and organized. And that has to represent the, at the end of the day, the product that I'm going to be getting, which should be professional, put together, organized, prepared, et cetera. So we started to, to sort of transform the culture from the very beginning with this vision of not being just a landscaping company, but you're like a professional services provider to these communities. They're paying you a lot of money and you need to look the part. You need to speak professionally. You need to be prepared, be organized when you show up to a meeting, et cetera. So um, we started to kind of think about the product like that, right? We're trying to create this new service in the industry, trying to carve out a unique spot in the market for yeah. kind of a premium landscaping offering and go sell, you know, larger contracts on this premium offering that kind of you know has the right product market fit, so to speak. You've probably heard me mention SM Bash, the conference in Orlando for acquisition entrepreneurs, SMB owners, and investors. It was such a valuable event, I met no less than 12 Acquiring Minds guests there in person, hosts of other podcasts in this space. And if you're on SMB Twitter, it was a who's who of all the biggest accounts. Well, SM Bash is coming back around this time in Austin in April, and I'll definitely be going back. I'm told by the SM Bash team that this year they're going even deeper on content relevant to search, including a focus on finding investors for your acquisition and inviting a lot of investors to attend as well. For serious searchers or those who've recently acquired, SM Bash is really the leading event. There are others associated with universities, 
But as far as I'm aware, this is the biggest and best indie conference for entrepreneurship through acquisition. Check out smbash.com, six letters, S-M-B-A-S-H.com, or click the link in the show notes. See you in Austin. I think we initially started winning business on responsiveness. That ultimately became one of our core values in the business. And we wanted the people that worked at WLE to think about their jobs as more of an emergency response unit, like an EMS provider, than a landscaper. Because we were hearing over and over and over when we were winning against our competition that these requests were made by a property manager a month ago, two weeks ago, a week ago. And we thought, you know, there's no reason why we can't have a proposal delivered to the customer within 24 hours, 48 hours at the worst. Like there are so many other industries that operate on that as a standard that we want mm-hmm. to bring that standard to landscaping and that simple business practice of making the market for getting a proposal a little more efficient was extremely rewarding for us as operators. So that, that was kind of the first kind of core tenant I think we found. Mm-hmm. And then that the market was was really hungry for quality, hungry for someone that was trying to approach landscaping with more sophistication, more performance than just a contractor showing up to do what's required of them and leading. Well, this must have been very validating to your hypothesis around what your edge would be, because this is precisely the edge you you thought you had and we're going to be able to outcompete local mm-hmm. competitors with. But were there no, uh, are there no other, is it really every kind of, uh, your competition, were they really not, mm-hmm. were there really not other professionalized outfits out there? Is everybody doing commercial landscaping in Austin, chucking, chucking a truck or whatever the expression is, you know, sort of thing? <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I don't know that I'd go that far. I, I, we have several competitors in the market that we admired, and several competitors that we drew from for inspiration. I think a part mm-hmm. of it is that Austin's just a very large market, and it's hard for one competitor to serve that entire market. So I think there yeah. was a lot of room for us to come in, and I think there was a lot of tired branding potentially in the market. If I was going to say something negative, I think the market was looking for something fresh. Um, I think the market was was looking for someone hungry. And I think we were just willing to to potentially overinvest than our competitors into growth. I think that's something we were were very eager to do from the beginning. We were always trying to invest ahead of what the business needed. So if, if we were trying to grow revenue, we didn't want there to be any barriers on our side to being able to service that revenue versus we were sometimes hearing barriers from our, our competitors in different bid meetings or barriers to even provide the service that was currently required at the property. So we were always trying to overinvest in labor, always trying to have that next rig ready to go before the sales were even made, overinvest in having a sales team. A lot of times the owner is doing the sales and in every industry, it's not, landscaping's not exempt from that. So having an organization be able to scale past me, Logan and Bradley, or sorry, me, Kate and Logan was, was important. And then having all the resources available in the company to go service that revenue was very important. Yeah, they, well, one that, framework. Oh, go ahead, Will. I was just going to say that that all sounds good, Bradley, but uh, mm-hmm. you know that just exacerbates your cash crunch. <laughs> <laughs> Investing yeah. in all that, I, I, you know. Absolutely, we benefited from having a great lender partner as well, which we, we should mm. give J.P. Morgan Chase a call out. We went through a refinance about a year in, and they became a, a great partner for us with expanding our lines of credit bringing in CapEx facilities that we were able to draw down. So we were financing a lot of this growth through very um, 
good debt, very, very advantageous rates, very good covenants on the debt. Um, so, so that was definitely a benefit to us that, and you know, just when you think about the maintenance business, it's just the exact opposite of the construction business. I mean, we're billing our customers day one before we're even providing service. There's somebody usually employed at the company you're billing to pay vendors. Like there's very little friction on getting paid in maintenance. So we were often getting paid net 15, 30 at the worst in advance of, or at the same time of providing those services and as a higher margin product. So we were really growing out of our cash flow problem in many ways because of servicing maintenance accounts. Like maintenance was providing working capital to the business. It wasn't removing working capital out of the business. So I'm glad you brought that up because that's a good point to, to make and, and to double click on. Yeah. Yeah, we talked about how we basically engineered maintenance to help fund the growth by the time it was all said and done. But there were a lot, it was like a bunch of little things that we did to to make that happen. You know, it didn't happen overnight. It felt like it was two years of working on all the little changes that eventually worked us out of it. But one of the, one of the frameworks I like to think about that we used was like the built to sell framework. So thinking about like, okay, first we need to have a narrow enough product to sell to someone to where the customer knows that they're supposed to be the customer for it. So we got rid of residential accounts right off the bat, right? So that already helps narrow our customer set down to where we know who we're selling to and they know that we're like the product for them. Um, And it meant saying no to something as much as it was saying yes to something else. And then even in that set, we were trying to do larger uh, commercial customers and mainly HOAs. And we would sell to other commercial customers if they fit the mold for what kind of customer we're looking for. But a lot of times we're selling to this pretty specific uh, HOA type customer. So I think that was kind of the first piece of it. The second piece was thinking about how do you um, productize the service, right? So the example in the book that uses like turning a logo design service into more of a product than a service. It's like a flat fee. It's got, you know, these certain steps to the process that they go through every single time. And that blueprint I think is, is really brilliant for thinking about how to create a ton of value because the more that you can productize your service, the more repeatable and easier it is to deliver it. Um, and the more valuable it'll become to require one day. If you don't end up selling it, obviously it's just more valuable to you. So what we were doing is trying to get everybody in a uniform contract that had the same, you know, 43 visit schedule that had the same suite of services that we were offering to every single property had the same price increases included the same termination clauses, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that helped turn our maintenance service into more of a maintenance product that we were offering. And then we would train our salespeople to sell that product versus sell it like a service, right? You shouldn't show up and be like, all right, like, what would you like us to do for you? You should show up and say, this is the product we offer right now. We, we would compromise all sorts of times on, especially with big customers to make small alterations to that contract. But we knew we were starting it like, here's a hundred percent. Okay. Maybe we're willing to make some changes that get us down to like 95% of that standard form contract. And if we can do that for a huge, you know, the far majority of our customers, now we have basically the same product we're offering to almost everybody. Um, so it was way easier to operate because we could get really good at offering that, that repeatable product that had the same basic features to it versus we offer this version to this person, this version of this person, and this version of this person. And they all have a huge customization that they've asked for, big accommodations that they've asked for that force us to change our operation to meet the customer's needs every single time that they ask for a, a different thing, which is you know, what we're experiencing on the construction side. 
but part of the what makes that so difficult is that every customer is different and every customer's facilities or, or grounds are going to be just a little bit different. So, um, yeah, like how do you how do you I, I mean, is it, maybe they're not as different as I think, but like what's the sweet spot in dealing with the fact that every every single one of your customers is going to be slightly different? Um, this isn't a true product. Ultimately, you are providing a service to different buildings that have different sizes and different acreage and different X, Y, Z. Yeah, I think you've got to be comfortable drawing enough limitations around your service to where you can reliably offer it in a really scalable way. And I think you'll know when you get to that sweet spot because you'll start to identify all the things that you're probably not that great at doing or not that great at accommodating and you'll get a lot of complaints around it. Um, and it'll hurt your scalability because you'll be so focused on providing these accommodations to customers that it kind of throws off your growth pattern. Um, so like, for instance, one of the, I think one of the things that, that we did that we sort of, you know, drew somewhat of a hard line on the sand on is saying like, okay, you know, if you want a, uh, a, a, a 27 visit contract, right. Where we've got to change our landscaping schedule. So all the crews are on this basic 43 schedule and you want a, an, an accommodation on that, um, you have to be a pretty important customer for us to want to make that accommodation to you because we need to have enough total revenue supported by you for us to make this accommodation um, so that it still helps our scalability, right? If we're doing that for a really small customer, then we're making this big change and we're devoting a percentage of our uh, overall resources that's disproportionate to the value that's coming in from that customer. Yeah. Versus yeah. if you're a really big customer, and you're asking for a rel you know, maybe one accommodation or two accommodations, that's fine. Now, if you want us to show up and also clean your windows, like uh, maybe that's probably outside of what we're willing to do, even for a big customer. Mm -hmm. You know, like yeah. we're 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 not we're not trying to completely change the serve suite of services we're offering, but we might we might make a change to our standard form contract, but we're kind of starting from this one you know, standardized contract that's got everything we'd ideally like to have in it that is our quote, product, and then we're having to make game time wise decisions about where do we compromise for the biggest customers, but we've drawn a lot of limitations around it. So, okay, but these are things we're just not going to do, um, you know, th that they might ask for. So I, I can't think of a ton of examples where we got asked, you know, because eventually this became so ingrained in us that we were probably self-selecting a lot of times for mm -hmm. customers who were mm -hmm. willing to say yes to this. Like if you even made it to the point where you were negotiating a contract with us, uh, it probably means that you checked a lot of initial boxes where we were qualifying you as a customer that meant you were probably interested in the exact type of product we were offering. So people who started from the place of like, well, I just need you to come like whenever I call you, you know, we need a we need a kind of on-call service provider or something like, well, it's roughly once a month, but like, we'll give you a shout and then can you just come out and mow it whenever we need it? We would have said no to that person way early on in the process and never tried to sell to them because it doesn't meet our basic product that we're willing to offer. Yeah, sure. I think, well, one way to think about it is, I think you're describing that the the size and value of the contracts can can vary widely between our different customers. So an HOA that has 4,000 homes might be a giant contract compared to an HOA with 50 homes might be a smaller contract. And, and I think for us, we would probably look at those pretty comparable in terms of that they're all probably getting very similar services. The, the big thing that changes is time. And I think mm -hmm. we found that we're very able to control and manage differences in time spent on properties, just in the way that we schedule and budget the number of crews. I mean, having 
a large site that takes five crews eight hours the entire day versus a site that takes one crew two hours. As long as the crews are the same size, like like we're starting to just say, how long do we drop this box right on the property with four people that comes out and maintains it, which is which is a much easier problem to solve than say a third of the customers want like the doggy waste buckets to be emptied every time we visit. That was something we right. could never do right. well. It seemed like <laughs> because that probably because that needs to be serviced every day, not every week is you know part of the problem going into it, but. <laughs> but that's one thing we just never figured out how to make sure we were taking away that, you know, those dog feces. Yeah. Um, but we were very able to just change two hours versus eight hours for one crew. Like that, that was a customization that was easy for us versus customizations okay. that might be more challenging for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, I think we also got to a point where if you are at a certain size, I think you, you actually are able to offer slightly more customization to some of your biggest customers because it doesn't hurt your overall um, normal growth engine as much. So, for instance, if you're going, if you're at ten customers and you're taking on the eleventh, I actually think it's more important for you to try and make sure that person fix fits in with your core product because there's such a high percentage of your sales at that point. So, for you to continue yeah. to scale, you're going to need to be able to offer a really repeatable, standardized product to that person. When we were adding on our two hundred ninety fifth customer it was actually slightly less important if that person asked for some sort of small customization, especially if they were large, because maybe that's like, you know, half a percent or something of our revenue at the time. And we already know we've got like 80 plus percent that are on this standard form, you know, no compromise version of the contract. So like the far, far majority of our business is all operated in, enough in on this one product to where it's not as big of a deal if we offer just a, a small little accommodation to somebody that's that's you know coming in new sure let's talk for a sec about building the sales function was there any dedicated salesperson when you acquired the business no 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 salespeople when we bought it just mainly the seller was doing all the the yeah person who owned the business was doing all the sales and so when you decided that you were going to treat sales seriously as part of your your growth strategy what did i mean we we could probably devote a whole another episode to building out that sales function, but like <laughs> mm-hmm. for, for somebody just give us like the, what you did at the very outset, like, was it just kind of hire that first sales guy and see what goes right, what goes wrong and iterate from there? Or was there more of a grand strategy or what does it look like when, you know, you're starting blank slate with a business you've acquired to really want to build a sales function? I think it comes down to knowing your target customer first. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's a good point. So maybe, maybe we start there and then we'll talk about the first person we hired. But I, I do think we needed to get to a, a point where we understood our ideal customer really well before we were ready to launch the sales spree. Um, and maybe, maybe we can dive into that a little bit separately from the sales conversation. But just determining who your ideal customer is is a really critical piece of uh, putting together the, a good sales organization. And in the lineup, that should come first before you then go build out your sales team. But from a sales team perspective, we started with hiring one person. It was pretty messy at first and pretty iterative. So we hired that person. We set them up on a CRM. We unleashed them on the Austin market with some general pointers. They did not come from a sales background. Uh, and we just tried to, we tried to sort of 
engulf them in the WLE way and uh, and get them to sell. Largely, kind of like Bradley was saying early on, on responsiveness. Like that was kind of our key. Uh, selling point at the beginning was like, hey, we'll get you a proposal in 24 hours. You know, we're like an emergency response service. So that was our, our stick early on. But it was a pretty rough beginning. Like we were actually uh, like giving this person sales uh, to start with just because it was, it was a pretty uh, rough, you know, beginning. And he, he was needing, we were trying to keep him motivated and get him you know, up and running and he wasn't selling a lot. I think he sold like a hundred grand in his first six months or something. And we gave him like another hundred grand so that he could get up to 200 grand in sales. So it was a, it was a pretty, uh, yeah, it was a pretty rough start. And we iterated from there um, by basically changing the, the order of, you know, determine your ideal customer and clean up the product first and then uh, give that, you know, salesperson uh, a bunch more structure around wh- who they're selling to, how they're selling, um, before you sort of just unleash someone on on the market. So some of the the pieces of that were, we ended up sort of devising a system where, uh, after we determined who our ideal customer was, we put a list of all those ideal customers together. We basically did some research on the market, figured out through publicly available means who these customers were. And then we would go give that list to our sales team and explain like, okay, these are your top 33 customers that we want you to be going after. And then you've got another list and you've got another list, so on and so forth. And these are the ideal people that would be customers of this company. And we're gonna highly incentivize you to go sell the biggest, best versions of each of those customers. So at the top of the list, you know, is going to be one of the best customers in all of Central Texas. And each person's got a, you know, sort of a number one seed, if you will, uh, mm-hmm. who they're after. And you get a ton of money on top of your normal commission structure if you can go sell that number one customer. And it would just go down from there. You'd get bonuses attached uh, at each stage, at each level of customer that you could go sell that would be on top of your normal commission structure. So they were highly incentivized to go sell to these large, healthy, great customers for the company to have. And then we would run all sorts of great little trainings that I think a lot of you know people do for their sales teams. But we would put them in a conference room. We would give them a you know fake proposal to sell to the you know quote HOA, which was just myself, the other partners, a couple of you know other team members. And then we would drill them with questions as if they were in a pitch meeting. And we would ask much tougher questions than they were likely to encounter when they were actually talking to the customer. And we would drill those types of things over and over again. It felt like we really caught a lot of momentum when we started going through those types of trainings, focusing them on the right types of customers, and then highly incentivizing them to sell to those customers by attaching big bonuses to the biggest bounties. And did you ever build a layer into your sales team? Or was it always just flat and everybody is reporting to you directly. Yeah. So we hired a VP of sales and that was, um, in 2018 and that VP of sales then had all the business development people reporting up to him. And then he also okay. had like a kind of a sales operations assistant that was also helping with all sorts of stuff kind of within the team. And that made up basically our sales organization and that, having a, a great leader, he was an incredible hire and he, uh, he was an excellent leader. He, he had been mentored really well 
not from a sales background, but just had a great mentor uh, at his last job working at the University of Texas. He worked under DeLos Dodds, uh, who was an athletic director uh, for a long time. He was really successful at UT. And he, had, I think he just had learned a lot of great lessons um, in working at that organization that he brought over to us. And it was also just a great guy. So he ended up being a really big game changer for us. So his team loved him. He was a great motivator of people. Um, and ended up being a great salesperson himself, to his surprise, I believe. Um, but <laughs> he, he was also selling for us uh, at the same time as as his team was, and uh, you know, eventually they they were on a roll. Great. Uh, I want to. We're going pretty long here, guys, but still got a few more topics. So um, let's let's hit them. We had talked in one of our pre calls about organic growth i.e. sales, what we just talked about, mm-hmm. versus what a lot, of, a lot of other acquisition entrepreneurs try to do, which is acquire their way to growth. They do their first deal. You know, it seems to be going well. Uh, they get some confidence. Maybe it turns on deal flow because other people in the market have heard that there's this you know, young, hungry acquisition entrepreneur buying landscaping companies. And so all of a sudden they get inbound, you know, which they were struggling so hard for that first deal. So there's just a lot of kind of tantalizing opportunity um, to... to do a second, third, fourth acquisition to, to grow quickly. Um, very, very common pattern. You have thoughts on it. What are those thoughts? <laughs> we have thoughts. Yeah. You know, I, I think looking back on our story, we, we had opportunities that we contemplated, finding opportunities at different times, and it probably would have just been a, a barrier to our current growth rate that we were experiencing on the organic side. I think it's a harder lift to get the sales engine up and running but if you can actually do that, I think it just generates way more value than an acquisition strategy. And with less friction, and it's just really hard, especially if you're gonna buy in the same geography that you're already in as a service company, especially a landscape service company, it's just really hard to mix those cultures, those brands, those opinions in the market about different service providers. So when we think about our focus on Austin and growing in Austin and being a big local competitor, I think we're we're so glad we spent all of our time trying to trying to build and establish the best sales engine in the market to go deliver that value. If you think about it in terms of cost, just the, the, the amount that we were paying in salary for salespeople in relation to the amount of EBITDA that they were bringing in, probably a, a way, way, way better trade than the cost to go acquire that EBITDA, especially when you consider the amount of, of uh, lost uh, business that might come from integrating that acquisition. So I, I think it was cheaper. I think it was easier in many senses because we never had to do a large-scale integration. We were just integrating one new customer into a, a system. The system was bigger than the customer we were integrating, right, versus trying to combine two equal-sized businesses or one business that's half the size of another business, right? We're just bringing in an extra 1% of revenue potentially into an existing system. So you know, I think our lived experience was just making the upfront investment to build out that sales team to get the first business developer right up and running and working, finding that target customer that we really want to pour resources behind and pursuing them was, was just a better trade than something that might end up with more of like a shotgun approach to bringing in an amalgamation of different qualities of revenue, different quality of customers, and then potentially having to go through that calling process again, right? And that, so I don't know. I, I think when we look back on it again, we just see that our, our rate of growth that we were able to obtain was from focusing solely on that organic revenue. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I, I think it's counterintuitive, but I do think that the fastest way you could have slowed us down and, and given us a different 
and much worse outcome in our deal would have been to force us to do an acquisition in the first couple of years. And I think that's largely because of the messiness of trying to combine small businesses and trying to integrate small businesses. Um, but I, I wholeheartedly agree with, you know, a lot of things Bradley was saying, like this, it is really just a lot more expensive. And when, you, when we sat, we sat down several times, we'd write out the cost because we'd get those types of opportunities you're talking about where somebody comes to you and like, Hey, let's go grab lunch. Like I'm the owner of a local landscaping company and we have heard of that name. And we, you know, are like, man, that actually would be kind of an attractive, you know, target to try and buy and integrate. We'd go have that lunch. We get kind of excited about it. We come back and then we do the math and you're like, man, it just doesn't, pencil out, even in, in, you know, with the past 10 years being some of the cheapest money ever available in the history of the world, um, it still didn't make sense to go acquire something, you know, if you can, if you can sell it yourself just because the cost is so much higher. You know, I mean, I think a really simple example to think about is like, if you're going to go buy $1 million in EBITDA and you're going to pay 5X, you're paying like 5 million bucks. And let's say somebody's going to give you, you know, a lot of debt to go do that. Regardless, um, you're paying $5 million at some point to be able to go buy that million dollars in EBITDA. And uh, if you can go sell that $1 million in EBITDA, um, you, you now have access to potentially like $5 million you know, worth of capital mm -hmm. essentially to go use to try and sell the $1 million for it to be a, a net uh, zero you know, cost to the business. And with a lot of predictability of that salesperson being able to do that again in the next year, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there, mm -hmm. there's so much more terminal value to a salesperson than, ideally. than to us a single acquisition. And, you know, and there's a lot of people that do serial acquisition strategies and are very successful. And I think that's amazing mm -hmm. they've been able to do that. If you think about the businesses that they're doing that in, it's, I think, a very specific band of established niche usually outside of the market that you're already in you're not necessarily buying in your same geography you're using a long timeline for that probably very well capitalized like i think the amount of people that can do that strategy and have the right base to start that way is probably few um but that there, there are definitely opportunities to do that out there mm -hmm. i think just the idea of putting that strategy onto any business is probably very dangerous yeah yeah uh, I like there's an important note about compounding that Bradley kind of touched on, which is that the sales team can continue to sell the next year, right? Who just sold your revenue for the prior year. And as you build out the structure, ideally you can add another salesperson and another one, another one with some sort of, you know, limit you approach based on the market size for that area. But, you know, if you're starting small, you've got quite a bit of runway, which was our story for sure, selling into the Austin market. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was almost like magic, you know, that we had this sales team that had just sold, you know, whatever, $4 million of deals in the previous year. And now, you know, for the next year, we're going to sell $6 million or $7 million um, because we're continuing to scale and compound basically the value of yeah. that sales team to our organization. They get better. Mm -hmm. They meet more people. You know, our product gets better. Our name gets out there more. Yeah. Um, and those types of things don't necessarily compound when you're doing serial acquisitions at this size specifically. Yeah. Like if you're as big as Brightview, you can run both at the same time. You can have a massive sales operation, you know, national sales operation, as well as a national um, high quality acquisition strategy that you run with a whole separate M&A team. 
but that's playing at a totally different size than you know you would be talking about when we're talking about search funds typically. And I think maybe to combine our points, you have to think about what the limits of your ability to compound are within the market that you're operating in. Because for us, even doubling four times, we were still probably less than 15% of the market for commercial landscaping in Austin. Right. Yeah. So our ability to continue that compounding strategy still had legs to it. And mm -hmm. I, I think there probably would have been a time at which we would have bumped up on our limits to continue to grow within Austin, but we certainly weren't there yet. Mm -hmm. And any sort of acquisition in an unrelated geography probably would have needed to be contemplated after that point, just because mm -hmm. of the return on our time and the compounding being so strong with what we were doing locally. You know, I, I'm struck by this point that basically sales EBITDA is a lot cheaper than acquisition than acquired EBITDA, particularly mm -hmm. in your business, because I would have, I mean, commercial landscaping, I assume, is just total red ocean. Like every sale, you're basically poaching from <laughs> a competitor or 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 the client is unhappy with an existing competitor although i know there's there's a lot of new construction in austin so maybe these were new buildings or new new developments or whatever that were coming up and needed their first uh recurring um commercial landscaping business to service them but um i just i would imagine that it's a hard it's a it's a pretty hard business to sell into given how competitive it is um and yet still uh, it was a slam dunk for you to pursue a sales strategy rather than than, than an acquisition strategy. A mm -hmm. Am I wrong about uh, comment on that? Yeah, I think I don't know what percentage were new builds versus existing customers. By far, the far majority were certainly existing customers that we were selling to. Um, but we definitely had a nice portion of people that that was yeah they just finished building their community or building their office space, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but yes, it is, it's a highly competitive market. We're typically going against two, three, four other comparable, uh, competitors when we're, we're going into a sales situation and usually it's an RFP. So it's a, it's a competitive bid that's being put out to market. You're getting several bids back and you're having to fight pretty hard to remain at the top of that list. You know, usually it's going to come down to kind of maybe two companies that the, that the property management company is going to be deciding between. And you want to be in that top two, you know, you want to have a 50, 50 shot at, at each deal ideally. Um, and I think a huge part of that came down to like getting into that top two and being really competitive came down to the focus of our, our sales team on a limited number of contracts where we could try and put an extra high touch on each sales opportunity. You know, I mean, for the big sale, I mean, you'd have thought we were selling to Delta or something, you know, I mean, we were, <laughs> we put together a presentation and a package that made it feel like you were the most important customer on the face of the planet right now. Yeah. You know, like the board would have the, we'd make these big leather binders and we'd put each board member's name on it for like an HOA, you know, um, mm -hmm. and each, each board member's got their, their little leather binder that's got all of these, you know, beautiful renderings that we've done of their community and what it could look like with certain enhancements and what our maintenance plan will be, the history of our company, you know, the employees that are going to be servicing this contract, et cetera, et cetera. So it had this really you know, high polished uh, deliverable that we were selling to the customer. We'd have all sorts of community maps that we'd build. Sometimes we'd make these giant community maps that we'd bring in as visual aids. We put together a PowerPoint presentation, you know, our, our presentations were trying, we're trying to make them two, three times better than yeah. what the next, you know, best person who was pitching, you know, was offering. So like oftentimes we would 
uh, we'd be presenting first or something and like somebody be coming right after us, you know, and we've put that on this elaborate thing with these leather bound binders and presentations and we're pointing to things on this map we built and we take all our stuff down and we're walking out and then the next guy's coming in and handing out like these little sheets of printer paper, you know, <laughs> that are like, uh, all right, this is like our proposal, you know, we would like to service your community. <laughs> what questions do you have? You know, like, yeah. so it's just, uh, we, we were trying to, um, you know, 10x, basically the next best competitor when it came to our sales presentation. I think that got us in the room, um, you know, almost every time with a big customer because that caught on, right? People want that person pitching to them. And then, you know, we had a 25% or so conversion rate in total. So out of all the revenue that we went after, we would convert you know, almost 25% of it. So I think that's just a great example, again, of the over-investing in sales. Like to be able to actually do all that it doesn't cost a ton, but relative to the amount you might be spending on sales, could be a pretty big percentage. So to have that sales operation support person, plus spending money on a, a two times or three times more quality deliverable, I think we got a lot out of those investments that was somewhat unique between us and our competitors. And then, Willie, you brought up the the Red Ocean concept, which, which I think is great. I think that's a good illustration for, for commercial landscaping. And, and I think you sh probably shouldn't run serial acquisition strategies in markets that are in industries that are red ocean, right? Because such an important tenet of that acquisition strategy is retention of those accounts. And if you're in a, a dynamic where it's a red ocean environment, that probably means retention is, is pretty low or could be low if not managed effectively. So I think that would just be another, another kind of point thing to think about. I mean, if you are using five times EBITDA as an acquisition multiple and, and your retention is 80%, what do you have at the end of mm -hmm. five years, right? Mm -hmm. um, landscaping has a higher retention rate on average than 80%, so it could be a little more attractive for a roll-up or a serial acquisition strategy, but I think those strategies need to be reserved for extremely high retention rates you know, because of all the risk in integrating those businesses. Uh, I want to, two um, things that we've just talked about first the how you just wowed the folks with the how you invested in the sales process and in, in your presentations and just totally wowed your prospects uh for a second uh bradley the, what we were talking about just a few minutes ago where you know your your thoughts i mean we're talking about now your thoughts on um sales versus acquisition and in your and both cases it doesn't actually seem like what you did is specific to what you're saying is specific to landscaping so I'll take the first, uh, the the sales first. So anybody who might be listening to this, who's thinking about buying into a fragmented services, local, maybe home services business, uh, not home services, because that's going to be consumer, but sort of some sort of B2B services business um, that has a recurring nature to it could implement the the sales strategy that you guys just described, where you just blow them the prospects out of the water that this isn't something that is only relevant to people buying landscaping companies right correct yeah yeah any kind of B2B and, and environment and it, yeah and it wasn't that you invested something more to you know pay for the leather binders uh, and have somebody putting all that material together but uh it was it was a relatively small investment compared to the reward of of your 25 yeah. percent conversion right yeah, we, we started spending more and more because we, we, yeah, we'd have all these heuristics, right? Like one of them would be thinking about this is in this. I think this started a lot when we were building out the uh, the top 33 system I was talking to you about, because early on we figured out that like 
okay, if we go sell this contract, that's like a $500,000 contract, you know, with our EBITDA percentage, that roughly translates to X dollars. Well, that means that, you know, out of that, we could go pay you know, quite a bit to the salesperson if they're willing, if, they, if they're able to close this deal and it will still have been an excellent deal for the company. But we can, we yeah. can spend quite a bit on incentivizing yeah. the salesperson. You know, we can right. pay more than you might think to incentivize a person to go sell this deal. And then we, because of our, our operational structure and our strong contracts and all the other things we talked about, we also have a really high long-term expected value on the earnings from that contract because we think yeah. we're gonna keep them. We've got a standard service we're offering. We have a predictable margin that we can do it at because it's a standard product we offer and we know what kind of margins we get off of that product. All those sorts of things would impact the way we thought about the heuristic of what we could pay a salesperson. The same thing would go into how much we could spend on a presentation, right? Like we might be able to spend five grand, 10 grand on a presentation and you can get some really nice leather binders and a really great map for the property for five grand. Uh, so we could do all sorts of things. You know, I mean, each person can get their own, you know, personalized Yeti cup and you know, you, you can do all sorts of things like that, that kind of limitless on how you can spend the money. But the important thing is knowing the heuristic for how much can you spend uh, on each customer that's a really high target, high value customer because of how much value they bring to the business. And if you start thinking about it that way versus like, oh my gosh, that's a lot to spend on one presentation, then I think it changes how you think about your your sales engine and what you're willing to spend to kind of give it a jolt. <laughs> yeah. Well, in, in the enterprise SaaS world or in SaaS period, <laughs> it's, it's the LTV, your long-term value of every customer, mm -hmm. uh, knowing that cold and then what your mm -hmm. CAC is, what your customer acquisition cost is, and, and, and playing with that ratio. And obviously, the larger the LTV, the, the, more, the higher your CAC can be. Yeah. Um, so yeah. um, then the other thing, and I'm, what I'm really trying to do here is, is, is pluck out some things that will be relevant to people, even if they're not looking at landscaping specifically. Just going back to mm -hmm. this, I don't want to belabor it, but going back to this um, growing through sales rather than, than acquisition, that you could probably apply that to many you know many different services businesses not just not just landscaping so i just want people hearing this to regardless of whether or not they're looking at landscaping think hard and really internalize this you know your your experience that you after looking at it just really concluded that building investing up front in a sophisticated sales operation was going to be money much better spent than going out and acquiring more and I, I feel mm -hmm. like there's a, yeah, and I feel like that's good kind of generic advice, not just in landscaping. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And even if it starts out, I think people have a hesitation in starting, especially if they don't have a background in building at a sales team. But I mean, our you know, path started out pretty messy. And so I think even if it doesn't start out super strong, stick with it and keep yeah. focusing on building out your sales team because eventually it will be a, critical part to you building a valuable business and it's very hard to get out of kind of escape velocity situation where like you've, you've broken through the atmosphere if you don't have an outside sales team it's going to it's going to completely limit your ability to grow your business at some point because you will sort of crater as an owner trying to manage everything and trying to sell at the same time um, and building out the skill of of creating an outside sales team i think is is one of the core drivers of people that build large businesses yeah, I think we want to approach that topic humbly of, of advocating for organic instead of inorganic. There are several people mm. that have made a ton of money doing yeah. organic yeah. serial acquisition strategies and roll-ups. And 
that's a playbook that's out there. I think for the, the first time acquisition entrepreneur, especially maybe somebody coming from private equity where they've been exposed to those models, I think you just have to approach your deal with a lot of humility and understanding of before I buy and build and develop and integrate and secure one asset, like you have to do that right first before even thinking about the next acquisition or the subsequent acquisitions, because you just don't really know until you get into the seat. And, and one thing we were thinking is that we were going to do acquisitions. Mm-hmm. So, and what we had to experience for ourselves, just the difference in, in what we could do organically versus inorganically. Mm-hmm. So if, if building a sales team is not a muscle that you have, you, you need to go try and build that muscle and, mm-hmm. and, and actually go experiment with that because, you know, it, it, it's probably just an investment that is going to return, you know, way higher than mm-hmm than you think it would. We could show you well where on our original model that we built before we even acquired the company, we said we were going to acquire $1 million of EBITDA every year for like five years or something. And we said we were going to grow at 10%. <laughs> and we ended up acquiring zero and growing yeah. at 100. Yeah. So like the model was completely wrong. And, and yeah. we, you know, set it. we ended up doing something that was almost the exact opposite of what we had originally you know, put together in our thesis. That's right. But you, I imagine you still would say that doing that first acquisition makes sense for the listeners. So you, oh, you're, yeah. we're not going to take this, we're not going to take this um, theory to the extreme where it's better to go out and start a landscaping business. Still, mm-hmm. still good to, you know, get that, you know, the, the seller's 14 years of a head start in one fell Correct. swoop and then iterate and, and refine and build from there. Correct. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Guys, we are going long, but I I just want to, we we still haven't even wrapped up the story, you you know, the happy, the very happy ending to your own story. So let's talk about uh, the the Brightview acquisition of you guys. And then let's just talk for a minute about landscaping. Generally, we've talked a lot about it already, but um, it is such a, it is such a common target for acquisition entrepreneurs. So um, Let's get everybody on the same page. So where where was revenue when you started? It was, it was seven or eight million in 2017. And where is revenue now in, you start talking to Brightview when? Late 2020, early 2021? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we started talking to them actually in 20, early 2020. And the business sold at the end of 2020. So it was like 10 months later. So we sold in October of 2020. Okay. Yeah. All right. And uh, and so where had you gotten revenue to at that point over those three, three and a half years? Yeah. So revenue started at like seven, eight million when we bought it. And then if you look at the landscape top 100, we, it says we were at like 23.5. Yep. Um, so we had gotten somewhere, we'll say generally right over that uh, by the time that we were selling the company. Okay. So about 24 million dollars. Um, and you, you dramatically improved the mix so that $8 million when you acquired was just 1 million of maintenance and 7 million of construction. And the 24 million that, that you'd grown the business to, there was a lot more in there, uh, that was maintenance revenue. Can you, can you, can you say what that mix was? I can't, can't say like the specific number, but we could tell you that, uh, it was like getting closer to half Mm -hmm. by the time that we were selling we we were close to half and half and and it kept going that direction as we sold and like if you if you took out the 
the uh, watermark moment of the sale and you just looked at it more like a couple of years of history, you know, including pre-sale and post-sale, you'd see that it was like continuing to grow the maintenance and continuing to keep the, the construction the same. So the percentage was continuing to go up for maintenance. Great. And so what happens? Does, does a, a M&A BD person from the Brightview team reach out to you or, or what? How does that, what does that look like when, when a you know, big private equity or publicly traded company starts having conversations? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Br Brightview is in our market in Austin. So we, we benefited from the fact that they were looking to move operations south, wanting to have their own facility uh, in the part of town that we were actually in. So our, our, our first meeting with the uh, director of M&A, Ed Bates, came through this really movement of Brightview's organic growth and trying to restructure how they're having a presence in Austin to being more near us. So they, they found us via our facilities. The director of M&A actually lives in Austin, which was a benefit for us. Kind of a, a serendipity, unexpected benefit that he was so close. Um, so we, we initially met them through the real estate. He wanted to, to see the site, wanted to understand what we had going on in Austin. Had uh, talked to some people locally. Ed did talk to local Brightview people about WLE before that meeting and learned that we had a good reputation. We were growing a lot. So that's kind of the backdrop to it is, is he's coming to meet us at the property to see the site. Yeah. The first meeting actually yeah, was but really you, you guys are so fired up. It's like whatever, <laughs> whatever the ostensible reason for the visit was, you're like, this is how it starts. Yeah. Well, you know, back to our comment about how it'd been hard to get excited about things because we've been let down so many times during sort of our business trajectory. I think we were all approaching that conversation very uh, timidly and it was very much an intro to like we didn't we weren't thinking about selling the company legitimately like we weren't we weren't going out to market. We didn't have a plan to like that later that year go sell the business or anything. We weren't even looking to sell. Um, we were just focused on growing it. And so that first conversation was really pivotal because it was just an informal breakfast where we had a visit with them and hung out, chatted about Brightview's values, our values, et cetera, et cetera. Like it ended up just being kind of an informal get to know you conversation more than it was like, we'd like to buy you, you know, like it, it was just us getting to know each other. So I think we left that needing to do some decision making on our own about whether or not we really wanted to sell the business. Um, and then that led to kind of the follow-up conversations with them and, and their M&A department after. Yeah. Well, obviously it all comes down to the offer. Um, but I'm, I am surprised that you wanted to sell the business, uh, because you'd experienced all the pain you'd, you'd, uh, you'd righted the ship, you transformed the company, you know, done, done this deep surgery and it had this playbook, had this repeatable sales process. You know, I mean, it just seemed like you had so much runway to, to keep growing. You, you doubled year over year over year. So, you know, if we take that exponentially, you'll be at 32. What was it? One, two, four, <laughs> eight, 16. You'll be at 32 mm -hmm. next year, right? Exponent. So, it, <laughs> yeah, it must have been, uh, it must have been a dazzling offer uh, or, or what? Was there, was there something else that made you prepared to, mentally prepared to sell? Yeah, I think it was a great offer. I think we also really liked Brightview as a, as a, as a part of the story of who we exited to. Uh, we thought it fit really well with what we set out to do, which was grow a great, healthy business. And if the opportunity ever came along to get acquired, then that would really help our story as business you know, people, as entrepreneurs, as search fund operators. Um, yeah. And so I think it, it, it just like the, the, 
the opportunity coming to us and, and how serendipitous it all felt, um, I think was a big piece of it. And then it was also a really turbulent year. I mean, you go back to 2020 and, you know, our conversations with Brightview actually halted for a couple months because COVID broke out in March, February, March. And so our business was going through a lot of changes and we were having to like, you know, hand people letters uh, so that they could be on the roads in Austin out to go deliver the service. So you're also coming in, you know, coming in with a, a really great offer during a time where there's a lot of turbulence going on in the economy. And so if somebody's coming in and they're willing to take some risk off the table from you, um, even though the business is actually healthy and still growing through COVID and we had some of our best months, you know, surprisingly coming through that time period. Um, but that was also kind of a track that was playing in the back of our minds a little bit as well as we had had this great story. We'd finally turned it all around. Everything was going great. Now COVID hits and someone's like, hey, you know, we'll make you a great offer to, to you know, buy the business. Uh, I think that had an impact on us a little bit as well. Is there anything else sure. that you think was an impact on us? Yeah, I think just the idea of Brightview as being the premier acquirer in our space, the totally, you know, you know kind of leader in M and A and landscaping was was very appealing, flattering. I mean, it, it's kind of a dream come true for someone who, mm-hmm. you know, sets out to to grow a landscaping company. And, you know, we were just marked by their desire to buy talent. I mean, what are you buying when you're buying a landscaping company at their their scale? You're buying contracts and people and equipment, but they can buy equipment cheaper than we can. So they're really buying contracts and people. And then having a vision for our talent and wanting to retain that talent. If you think about working at WLE, if, if you're a mid-level manager, there's maybe a, a level or two and then you're at a Logan seat. So just the ability to grow <laughs> being, being pretty capped because Logan's not going anywhere. Um, versus at Brightfield, you've got like seven levels above you and the ability to, you know, to move around throughout the country and, and so many benefits like that. So thinking about where our people would, would land ultimately was also important. And I, and I think, you know, we didn't run a process. We didn't look for another offer, a, a different type of acquirer. I think we liked the idea of Brightview as the home and mm-hmm. as the strategic acquirer. So we never went and price shopped. We never went and ran a process. We, you know, we were kind of sold on Brightview as the buyer. Yeah, I, well, I ta- think the talking dream about part it. Of it. No, go ahead. Sorry, go I was ahead, just going to say, I, I think the part that Bradley mentioned about it kind of being like the fulfillment of a dream is pretty important too, like that. As it as you we started out talking about like our young you know so we're growing up with our dads getting us in, interested in investing and then you become an entrepreneur at a young age you're interested in business like being able to sell your company to a public company is like up there with the best sure. you know a most ideal outcomes especially earlier on early on in our careers to have that be a part of our story you know while we we're still in our twenties. I think in a lot of ways to me, it was felt like too good to pass up, you know, it, the, the risk of going and running a, another process during COVID, uh, felt like what it wasn't worth it for, for us to be able to have, you know, the alternative be this great opportunity to sell to Brightview. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it's, we, I was going to say, Bradley talking about edge earlier and, and you had talked about how like strate- strategic acquires, you know, some of their edge is that they, they can often pay more or whatever. Brightviews has an edge of just the, the prestige of their name. I mean, you, you, you know, they're going to, anybody, anybody in the landscaping business has heard of Brightview. They're the, mo- they're the most aggressive, most prestigious acquirer. Um, I don't know if they offer the best 
deal, but I would imagine they probably would or close to it. So um, those are just a lot of advantages they have as they go into markets trying to acquire companies, pretty pretty landscaping companies, pretty irresistible, I would imagine. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's the equivalent of, you know, some software startup being approached by Google. It's like, well, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, I'll, mm-hmm. I'll, exactly. I'll, t- I'll take that yeah. meeting and probably say yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Thanks for saying that. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I want to, just for the benefit of the audience, I know you guys can't talk about uh, any any specs of the deal, but um, we can triangulate a little bit here. You said you were at $24 million in revenue, and I did did a little homework, and it looks like Brightview publicly says that they, they acquire between 5 and 7x is what I found of EBITDA. So call it 6x, 24 million. If you guys, you know, landscaping maybe does 15 to 20, 20%. This is so back of the, back of the napkin. Um, but w- what is that? 20% of 24 million, four and a half, five million bucks times six X. So solid, as I said at the top, solidly into the eight figures, 20, but somewhere in the 2030 range. Um, you guys are not a- agreeing or disagreeing with any of this, but I, w- I want the audience to have, <laughs> to have, uh, some sense that I am calculating. So, uh, we won't know if that's, that's accurate or not, but, um, uh, th- those are some pretty solid data points to be working off of, I think. Um, so a huge, huge win, I think, no matter, even if I miscalculated something there, clearly a huge win. Guys, let's close it out with um, just landscaping in general. I keep saying that it's a popular industry for acquisition entrepreneurs. Of all of my guests, landscaping is the, the industry that has come up the most. I think I've had four other guests um, who, have, who have acquired landscaping mm-hmm. businesses. Um, if you were talking to people out there to w- looking at landscaping businesses, other than the obvious, th- are there things other than the obvious ones we've already talked about? You know, recurring maintenance revenue, uh, you know, B two B versus versus residential. Are there other things that you would tell people to to look for in a landscaping business? Yeah, I think size is important. You know, making sure you're not buying a job right out the gate, and understanding kind of the steps in valuation to where your business gets more valuable. You know, one thing we advise people now, regardless of what business they're looking at, is to just have a really solid understanding of who the strategic acquirer is in your space or one of them and how they value businesses and using that as how you think about the value that you're paying for. And then so you know what you're building into over five years. So just understanding the difference in value between the different types of revenue within landscaping and understanding, you know, kind of the size at which you become more valuable to other companies, I think is really important. As you know, landscaping is a very fragmented industry. Brightview, I think, represents still less than 10% 10% of the industry, but growing for commercial landscaping. So it's a, certainly a trade that has a lot of longevity to it. The, the the trade is not done and there's still several opportunities to buy and build landscaping companies. I, I don't know why this industry won't continue to be a very good one to operate in, in terms of current revenue and, and acquisitions happening. So I, th- I think maybe this the trap is that you end up in too small of a business and it's the, the way the business operates is too uh, too much focused on revenue. That's one-off in nature. What What's your too small threshold, Bradley? You know, you just want to be very cognizant of buying a job. So you, you need to do your own kind of analysis on, on what the EBITDA is of the business, your salary, and then all the debt service that you have to pay for, and making sure there's a healthy margin to be able to actually go invest ahead of where the business is and being able to grow your business. I think it's easy to accidentally get into a spot where you really just have to keep managing the business you bought to pay 
all of your obligations and your own salary. So, I mean, obviously buying at a low multiple is great and then buying at the right size, which you can continue to grow. I might, to be able to give your listeners maybe a specific number to think about, Well, I might think about half a million in EBITDA as like the threshold. Going below that, you're pretty much guaranteed buying a job. In that range, you're pretty close. Whether or not the business can really afford a general manager, a high quality general manager is in question, probably at the half a million EBITDA level. And as you go up from there, you get into safer and safer territory. So as you get approach like a million bucks in EBITDA, you're probably not buying a job you yeah. probably you probably have some sort of management team in place and i'd say that is that also relates to one piece of advice i would give which is to look for companies that already have a experienced they have an experienced management team in place at least a general manager who's been there a few years who's ideally pretty money motivated because that's going to be one of your primary tools you can rely on as an acquirer is you may not have a lot of relational capital built with them from day one, but you can put an incentive structure in place. So if you know that they're relatively money motivated and they're hungry and they've been there a few years and they're ready to grow the business, I think that's a, a prime target, you know, and something that could something that can be reasonably transitioned well. And uh, you're probably not buying a job to use Bradley's, you know, phraseology. I, I do think too the retention number is really important. I think you want to be thinking a lot about that customer list that they started with at the beginning of the year or at the beginning of the trailing 12-month period, and then how in the last year have they been doing it from a retention perspective? Have they prop remained profitable while they've been retaining customers? Um, I think that's like, if, when we look at our next business, it won't be landscaping, but regardless of what we're doing, uh, we'll put a lot of emphasis on the retention percentage you know, over the past several years. And in landscaping, that's no, you know, it's no exception. That's a huge part of what makes a business valuable in that space. Yeah. Great. Guys, last question. Um, is there, if you were to choose one or two attributes of your whole journey, be it a particular decision, uh, a particular um, strategy, or, or even a character trait uh, uh, from either of you, or, or a character trait in the partnership, that really you could kind of point to as um, a key ingredient of the success, uh, what would it be? That's a good question, Well, I've got two. Oh, great. Oh, I'll look at Bradley. <laughs> yeah, go for it. will probably be better, but we'll, we'll get some out of the way here. Uh, my two would be, one, this everything that's related to the idea of productization, I think is really important for creating value. And I think Built to Sell is a great, sort of starter package for thinking about productization. And number two, I'd say outside sales team. If you can nail yeah. productization and outside sales team, you're off to the races. Mm -hmm. My close third would be building a credit department and, <laughs> and a collections <laughs> process. Because if you do the first two right, but you don't have enough cash, you know, it's, it's, it does become hard. Mm -hmm. But I do think the first two would be my, my top two picks. Yeah. Right. I'll, I'll try and hit like account management and culture kind of together as a way to talk about retention. Like even if you have a dominant sales team and sales strategy and you're, you're doubling your business's revenue, if you retain half of that in a year, you'd have totally destroyed your reputation. And a lot of that would have been for, for nothing. So having a culture that people want to work at your business, where you take care of them, where they feel valued, where you feel like they're raising, you're raising the ceilings on what they can do. 
professionally, I think is very important. And then having a structure in which they thrive that the customer likes so that the customer stays with your business, super important. So like account management and, and your company's culture as one. And, and then I kept touching on this, but I, I wanna go back to just this idea of being able to invest into your business's future, that there's enough margin within the business or cash on the balance sheet to be able to stay ahead of the problems that are coming from your growth. Because for us to keep breaking through that ceiling over and over and over, that meant that our business needed to look like the next iteration of the business in advance of us actually getting there so that the whole thing didn't crumble mm -hmm. and we lost a bunch of customers because we couldn't provide that same mm -hmm. level of service despite scaling. So if you are going to go in and buy a business and aggressively grow it like we did, you have to have some mechanism to be able to finance ahead of that growth and have the organization healthy, growing ahead of where it's at. And a big part of that for you was these uh, lines of credit, these generous, generously priced lines of credit. Yeah, but we, which we wouldn't have needed if we did a better job of scaling maintenance versus construction and uh, made some of the improvements that we made later to the collection cycle and the credit department. If we'd done that at the beginning of our journey, we could have financed all of it through our own you know, our customers would have financed it just yeah. through having negative working capital. We would have been essentially bringing in cash before we were paying some of the costs related to it. So I think that's a really important note for people to keep in mind because I don't think a lot of people are thinking about building a credit department out when they first buy a company. Yeah. It's just not in the top like 10 list, but it should probably be like number two or three. It's like, okay, how do we make sure that we convert revenue to cash as quickly as possible yeah. and focusing on that early on would have really helped us. But I, yes, yeah, with in our particular story, our credit partner was a huge Ooh. played a huge role mm -hmm. in us being able to survive and then thrive yeah. later. Yeah, we're extremely grateful for the folks at yeah. JP Morgan Chase, and you know, I think their view on our business was is they had a a long term view on landscaping. They liked landscaping. They liked the Austin market, and they wanted to bank young people that would would be around as a customer in the future. So I think we we found them at the right time in their journey and met what they were looking for. Talk about fit, right? Um, yeah. And I, I think there's there's probably an ideal lender for everybody too, and and that can be a a great significant partner as well. Mm -hmm. Well, Bradley Logan, this uh, this has been the longest interview yet, uh, and I think every every minute was deserved. <laughs> this is a, this was an epic journey. Uh, and we really got into the weeds on some really, really high value uh, stuff. I think this is going to be so valuable to people. So thank you very much for your time. Uh, and a little bit of backstory for people. We have been uh, working to put this interview together for over a year. So thank you for <laughs> your patience and, and, and continuing mm -hmm. to come back to me and say, we're, we're trying, we're trying, we're trying. We finally made this happen. It was very worthwhile. Thank you, gentlemen. And just a Congratulations on on, a, on an awesome uh, first first win in your business careers. Just epic. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Will. We're Thanks. grateful to be on the pod. All right, guys. Till next time. Thanks. Thanks.